for those of you who are new or do not remember my name, if you have any complaints, my name is Marius. George. <laughs> George, yes. Um, this song, well, let me, let me start differently. Um, every time we sit down as leaders to talk about what series to start next, he makes fun of me because I always say, let's do songs. Right? Imagine, half a year in the songbook of the Bible. How cool is that? Uh, we haven't got there yet. This is a small um, taste of that series that will happen somewhere in the future. We don't know. Um, but I think I'm in good company wanting to do Psalms because apparently uh, it's the book that it's most quote, quoted by Jesus. So I'm in good company, right? I mean, maybe it has some teaching for us for the next year. Um, I don't have a title, it's just Psalm 1, but I have two questions that I want us to ask and answer. It's very important to ask them first, not just answer them. Have I been happy this past year? And two, can I be happy next year? Right? Depending who you are, in one way or another, you use a kind of vocabulary to establish for yourself this New Year resolution. I want to be happier than this year. Right? Does anybody want to be less happy than this year? There's no such person in the world, probably. Um, so, yeah. Um, methodology. I have two parts for the sermon, and each part has two points. I'm saying this so that you know what to expect, because it's important that you have this in your mind. So, let's start. First question. There's going to be a lot of questions. You'll love it. Um, first question. Have you been happy this year? Or are you happy right now? Catalin says yes. Are you happy? Wow, you should see your faces. <laughs> Are you happy? <laughs> Can somebody be truly happy in this life? And when I mean truly happy, I mean whatever happens, nothing can take that away from you. Can we be that kind of happy? Catalin says, yes, must be true. Um, let me ask the question in a different way. If your life, like it is right now, you know your life, well, you and the Lord know your life better than anyone. If your life, as it is right now, would not change from now until the moment you die, namely, your, let's say you're single, your marital status did not change. Your health would not improve. Your body would not, I don't know, feel more fresh. Would you still be happy? Now, apparently, empty slide. <laughs> apparently, the book of Psalms, the entire book of Psalms, starts with the word happy, right? 
Psalm 1, 1 starts, Blessed is the man. The Hebrew word for blessed, as was translated blessed, is the word ashrai. Hoping saying that correctly. And it means happy. Happy is the man who, and we'll see in the sermon what happens to the happy man. So again, can we be, can we be truly happy? That's not even the question. The question is how. That's what everybody cares about. How can you be truly happy? If you look backwards, was I happy? How was I happy? Why was I happy this year? I'm wondering how many of you, you should, you should, it's so interesting when you are up here and you're asking these questions and you should see people's faces. It's very interesting. I'm wondering how many of you sit there and think, when I'm asking how can you be happy, I'm wondering how many of you think he's going to say Jesus, of course. I mean, we're coming to church, not to, I don't know. Which reminds me of a story. I'm all about stories. There was this uh, Sunday school teacher, and she asked a first grade, a class of first graders, what is gray what, that has four paws, a bushy tail, and eats acorns? A kid gets his hand up, Teacher says, yeah. He says, well, you know, I would normally say a squirrel, but we're in Sunday school, so I'll say Jesus. I promise you that this sermon is more complex than just a simple answer. It's Jesus. Hold me accountable. Let's read the psalm. Follow along on the screen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the, in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. From the beginning, it's obvious that the psalmist is doing or is contrasting two things. The godly and the ungodly, right? On the one hand, you have those who walk with God, who are like trees planted near water, right? And they have deep roots, and they bear fruit year after year. Right? And then the ungodly, by contrast, again, are not so. What are they? They are like chaff. Now, chaff is, is the, um, the shell around the wheat seed. It's very light. And what they do, probably you've seen this, they put the, the wheat in a, in a huge basket and they aerate it. Right? They, they throw it in the air so that the wind comes and takes the chaff away. And gone are the ungodly. 
Now, he uses this metaphor to tell us that those who believe in God can be happy in a way that those who do not believe in God cannot. And he identifies two things that people look at to make them happy in this life that cannot make them happy in this life. And those two things are the two points of my first part. Part one, here are the two points. Point number one, you won't be happy when your happiness is based on circumstances. Two, you won't be happy when you have no anchor point outside of yourself. My anchor holds within, what was it, the song? The veil, the veil right? Christ is my anchor. But we'll, we'll get there. You won't be happy if your happiness is based on circumstances. In verse 3, the psalmist assumes that a person's life, all of you here tonight, have seasons in your life. Right? He says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. A human life, a man and a woman's life, is made out of seasons. You have on the one hand spring and summer, the weather is friendly and it's, it's um, favorable, but then you have winter, threatens to kill you. You have drought, threatens to drown you, or rather not drown you, but dry you up. And unfortunately, as we all know probably, you cannot cut these seasons out. You cannot just live seasons of summer and spring. It's not realistic. It's not human. It's not normal. It's not possible. So if your happiness is based on, I'm going to live in a summer kind of season all my life, it's not going to happen. Tim Keller in, has a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says this. Very interesting, though. The modern approach to happiness is to remove any and all suffering. Avoid pain, or if you cannot, sedate it. Right? Pills. Eliminate disease, discomfort, and injustice. And these are good and worthy goals. But, there's always a but. No amount of money, no amount of power, and planning can prevent bereavement dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Hu and this is great ending. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Again, in other words, if you think you can live life only in springtime, you are set to fail. Now, let me share some really real-life information with you. This was, this was a treat for me. Have any of you heard of WikiHow, the website, WikiHow? WikiHow, if you don't know about anything about it, WikiHow is like a website where you type in how to do whatever, how to drive a car, how to bake a cake, I don't know. And then the they tell you the steps or they tell you different ways to do it. I went to WikiHow 
some time ago and wrote How to Be Happy. It's good. So, eight pieces of advice, if you will. Number one, be optimistic. What if your life is a huge mess? What if you don't live according to a promise that says the future will be better? What do you do? You cannot be optimistic. You can't just assume things will get better. They won't. I mean, yes, the Bible says it's deceitful above anything, but I mean, follow it. You never know where it leads. Should I even say anything? Do not apologize for who you are, right? You're awesome. Unless you're not. You might have serious problems. And people tell you, don't do that, don't say that, don't go there, don't look at that. Until you don't. And funny enough, most unhappy people make more than enough money. How that works, I don't know. Because cancer visits only unhappy people? I don't think so. Number six. Unless they're jerks, or unless they abandon you. I heard the story about a mom this week who was abandoned by all her kids, and she was in a hospital, and she died. Nothing from the kids. Because apparently she was a bad mom. So, stay close to family and friends. Have deep, meaningful conversations until depression takes the capacity to even speak away from you. And then, I don't know. And I save the last for the best for last. Guess what it is? Seriously now. Is this the way that somebody can live a happy life? Is your life based on circumstances? You need something deeper than circumstances, right? You need something in which, if you're a tree, your roots will go down very deep, and that something will keep you, whether it's spring, summer, or anything else. You need something. We'll see what that is. Do you remember what David says in Psalm 4? He says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. These are circumstances, right? What does this mean? This means that I have more joy in God 
than everybody who has grain and wine. What does that mean? It means that when my grain and my wine does not abound, I'm still happy. What does that mean? Before I go on, have you been in seasons of drought in your life? Have you went through seasons of drought? I'm not going to explain what that is or define it because we all meet them in different ways, but surely everybody has went through at least one. For Christians, and I'm coming back to this, for Christians, seasons of drought are seasons where we can take the roots of me being the tree, right? and put them deeper into that soil that helps me grow. Why is that? Because in a season when I realize that Christ is all I have, I realize that Christ is all I need. Not only that, but when you don't have wine and grain, you realize that you don't need more than Christ. And when you do have wine and grain, you realize that wine and grain cannot give you anything close to who Christ is and what He gives you. I should ask, what are you missing now? And why does it make you sad? There's something better, bigger, shinier, more beautiful and eternal Right? That was point number one. Point number two. You won't be happy when you have no anchor point outside of yourself. We understand what this is. What, you understand what I mean. When there's no anchor point outside of yourself, right? Is it clear? We said that the happy man is like a tree planted by streams of water, and that water helps him grow. And this image, this idea, attacks a myth or a story in our culture head on. What's the idea? The, the story or the myth that the culture sells us through movies, music, books, and all that is... Your amount of happiness is according to your amount of freedom. The freer you are, the happier you are. Have you, have you seen Western movies any time recently? Western movies? You know, there's, the, there's that image in a, in a Western movie where a, a huge tumble of weed kind of is blown by the, by the wind and it goes through the desert and then there, you have the whistling and the cowboy music and all that. Have that in mind. I'll come back to that. So, freedom. C.S. Lewis talked about this, but in a different way. He, he referred to a fish, a very dumb fish, actually. He said, a person thinking that he's happier when free... Free means no authority than myself, Marius, right? It's like a fish who wants to be free from the confinements of water. Why would you be, 
Why would you want to be free from the confinements of water if you're a fish? You were created for water. And in the story that he tells, the fish comes on the, onto the beach and flaps around. Oh, he's happy. And then he dies. Not a happy fish. Right? When we're not anchored into something outside of ourselves, there will come a point when we are just gone. The tumbleweed in the Western movies, just gone. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying any Macbeth fans? Nothing. Nothing. Macbeth was a fish. A dumb fish who wanted freedom. If there's nothing outside of ourselves, it makes no sense that we want justice. Everybody with their own, right? Why should there be justice? Jungle, no, the law of the jungle, right? Everybody with their strengths and powers. And don't believe me. Let me read you a, a quote. This is, this is serious. This is Tolstoy. And if, if Tolstoy says it, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me, and I loved her. I had a large estate, which, without much effort on my part, increased. My name was respected, I enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live because of death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide, and it's true, sought an answer without which one cannot really live. What's the question? The question is this. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Is there? Is there any meaning in my life that my inevitable death will not destroy? You know, comment. If if your death changes, changes your eternal uh, destination, you have a problem. Remember, remember that both heaven and hell are eternal. They're not, you know, we'll do it until we can and then no more, right? Sounds funny, but it's... Yes, for a time, it's possible to be intoxicated with life. You can drink, you can have fun, you can have friends, you can whatever, right? But there comes a moment in everybody's life, everybody for themselves, right? They, we know. When you realize, in the face of death, life is a fraud. No matter my status, no matter my bank account, no matter the grain and the wine, if, if there's no meaning in my life that my inevitable death will not uh, destroy, it's a sad story, right? You know, everybody says now, you know, you cannot really understand the meaning of life, so just don't worry about it, just live. 
You cannot just live. Who does that? That sounds like the wiki-how thing, right? Just, you cannot live life like that. If your life has no anchor outside of itself, it is chaff, right? Somebody puts you in a basket and keeps throwing you up in the air so that the wind takes you away, right? And that's the tumbleweed image in the Western movie, right? You just go where the wind takes you. Done with the first part, done with the second part, uh, point, conclusion for this part. The psalmist put before us two ways to live, right? The man who knows God lives with an abundant, never-ceasing source of joy that endures throughout all the season in his life. And when he dies, he's received into eternal glory. The ungodly live an increasingly, uh, an increasing, live with an increasing sense of futility. They have no resources in pain. Right? People don't know what to do with pain, except go buy medicine to hide it away. And they can find no deeper meaning, deeper meaning in suffering. Right? Read First Peter. Suffering has a purpose. And it's momentary. And after that, after death, there's judgment. Right? Two very different lifestyles. Someone said this, and I thought it was really good. Um, the closest believers ever come to hell is pain and suffering on this side of the grave. Whereas the closest unbelievers come to heaven is fleeting, fleeting pleasure on this side of the grave. Very different lifestyles, again, right? Now, of course, all this begs two questions. Which way did you live this year? And what way will you choose to live next year? Blank slide. Part two. This will be the practical application part. Besides all I said, the psalmist does one more thing in this Psalm 1. And what he does is he reveals the secret for true happiness. It's not enough to be just a Christian, or it's not enough to just try Jesus, or just come to church, right? It's just an activity, right? Almost all of these are activities, right? Let's read verse 1 again. It goes like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Explanation. What does he mean by counsel of the ungodly? He means the way you think, the counsel, right? What does he mean by stand in the way of sinners? He means the way you behave, the way you act. And what does he mean by sits in the seat of scoffers? He means the place you belong. 
In the Jewish culture, women would sit with women, men with men, rich with rich, and so on and so on. Slaves with slaves, right? But what do all these together mean? Right? The way you think, the way you behave, the place you belong. What are these? My identity. It's who I am. The way I think, the way I behave, and where I belong. But what shapes these? What pushes them? What helps me decide things, right? We said it's the way I think, the way I behave, the place where I belong. What, what, what decides these? They're not just in the air, right? We don't hear them over the news on all those beautiful radio things, right? <laughs> they should come from somewhere, right? The psalmist says, let your mind, let your behavior and your identity be shaped by the word of God. So here it is. What's the secret to truly being happy? The secret of happiness is driving your roots as a tree deep into the gospel. You see, the answer was Jesus, but probably not the way you thought. There's more. For that to be possible, we need to be very serious with two things. The Word of God and the people of God. A few words about each one and then we're done. Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. What do you meditate during nighttime if you wake up? Reading and meditating is not a duty. It's not a must. It's not something that you go to church and Christian will be like, Hey, did you meditate? It's your own heart that should push you to do it. And you know why? Because it's a delight. I know somebody in this room who loves honey. The Word of God is like honey. And the idea is that the Word of God becomes such a delight that it takes, let's put it like this, that it takes away other bad delights. Nobody says that you should be like Jonathan Edwards, but Jonathan Edwards asked me after his service who he was. Here's a quote. Sometimes only mentioning a single word will cause my heart to burn within me. Only seeing the name of Christ or some attribute of God will suddenly make my heart burn. And God suddenly appears glorious to me, making me have exalting thoughts about Him.
The Lord knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean? What he's saying is, my Lord and my God, my greatest joy in this life is that I know you and that you know me. And if, let's come down to earth. Um, if, you, if you're here tonight and you hear all this, maybe it sounds good, maybe it doesn't. But you hear all this and you're wondering, or maybe not wondering, but you're kind of talking to yourself and you're saying, man, I really don't feel like that. I don't feel like reading the word or not very often, if at all. I don't feel like praying. Meditation is just the most foreign concept in my heart. Or I come to church, but those people, man, I don't know. And probably your question should be, what should I do? I said this is the practical part of the sermon. What should I do? What should I do next year if I don't feel like reading the Bible? The only thing you can do is close your eyes and say, Jesus, I don't feel like reading your word. I do not want to. Give me a heart to read it. If you exist, change my heart and help me read your word. I want to. I just simply don't feel like it. He's a God who overflows with grace and mercy for those who come to him. Otherwise, we, I mean, do you need proof? We're here. Otherwise, we won't be here. This would be an empty room where nobody talks. Right? But the fact that he's graceful and merciful to those who need him, the fact that we're here is proof to that. So nobody can contradict me. Just so I'm saying, just so I put it out there proudly. Right? So, delight in the word, then meditate on the word. Right? He says, again, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, in on, and on his law he meditates day and night. The word that was translated into um, meditate here is the, the Jewish word for mumble. Mumble, right? That's what the word means. I'm not going to repeat it because my Hebrew is, doesn't exist. And somebody compared this to an image which I really hope you will never, ever forget. How does a cow eat? A cow wakes up in the morning. Let me read it to you. A cow wakes up in the morning, eats some grass, and then lays down to take another nap. After this nap, it regurgitates the grass it ate, chews on it a little, extracts the nutrients, and then takes another nap. And then wakes up again, regurgitates again, continues this process until there's no nutrients anymore. So my other advice to you is, which I hope you will share with your colleagues at work, read your Bible like a cow. I'm sure you'll never forget this. So when you see your Bible on the shelf, think about it. 
Should I be a cow or should I be a man who just wants to be free? Be a cow. Regurgitate. Take the nutrients. In 2020. 20, in, yeah, 2020. So, read it daily, memorize it, study it in small groups, well, small group for now, and then meditate on it. And then shortly about number two, the people of God. Right? He says, don't stand in the way of sinners or find your place among scoffers. Right? But then where should I stand? Where should I sit? We still live in a sinful world. You know, a sermon might, might inspire you. Maybe this sermon might, might inspire you in one way or another. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but it is the community in which you live that shapes you. Right? Whether you want it or not, actually. Church is not the place for a weekly pep talk. Pep talks are given to encourage people. Right? What I'm doing now, if you will, in uh, unorthodox terms, is a kind of pep talk. I'm encouraging you from the Bible to do certain things because that's how God, through His Son, told us to live. But this is not going to change. Well, maybe, hopefully, God willing, it will, maybe. But maybe it will not change your life. Church is not the place for a weekly social event, right? It's just one day, and it's only two hours per week. What else do you do two hours per week that will change your life forever? But your best and deepest relationships should be with the people of God. Conclusion and recap. Number one, have I been happy this past year? We're coming back to the questions that we started with. Have I been happy this past year? Did circumstances dictate my happiness? Was there an exterior anchor point in my life? Did I delight in God's word? And did I love and serve God's people? Number two, can I be happy next year? If circumstances will not dictate my happiness, if Christ will be my anchor point, if I delight in God's word, and if I will love and serve God's people, then yes, I will truly be happy next year. Amen.